Greetings to everyone listening. This is the Greek Speak podcast featuring the Archon and the Greek. I'm the Archon, creator of GreekSpeak.com, and this is episode three of my conversations with my co-host, the Greek, who will be with me in just a minute. As I mentioned in the last episode, I'm aiming for more regularity with the live streams, so I've been able to stay on schedule for this one, and I hope to continue doing these streams at one-week intervals, so let's hope for the best with that. Episode 2 is available to listen to and download through the podcast page on the website. Also, downloads are once again possible for episode 0, since I've upgraded my SoundCloud tier. For this episode, feel free to use the GreekSpeak chat room as always to ask any questions. And also, GreekSpeak.com has no political, religious, or commercial affiliations and is completely funded and managed by myself. So that's it for my introduction. Please enjoy the rest of the show, and thanks again for listening. Hi there, Greek. Greetings. How you doing? All right. Uh, let's do another stream. Right. So for this week, I'd like for us to examine a theme that's been mentioned here and there in previous episodes and quite a bit within the totality of Greek speak itself, which is that of communication. So for our purposes, I've broken that down into two subcategories, which are language and technology. But let's start with the parent category that is communication itself. Um, I guess communication is generally thought to be a pretty unassuming word, whether, you know, you, you associate it with machines that you use to send messages or the etymological meaning of imparting information. But from the kinds of things that you've talked about in the past, I've gotten the impression that the word carries a lot more nuance and implication that isn't touched upon much. For example, you know, you can talk about art as a form of communication or certain aspects of nature that act as a communication what do you mostly associate that word with and what kinds of concepts are associated with it that don't typically get brought up? Let's see. That's that's a pretty broad opening uh, to walk through. So so let's walk walk through that opening and look left and right and up and down and a little behind. Uh, I would say that, uh, you know, by now maybe people have gotten the gist that when we bring up a term and focus a term uh, on a term like – communication, we should look up what it really means, right? And the only way to figure out what things mean uh, is to start on reference material. And then lastly, how it's being used in culture. Uh, from an etymological dictionary or a regular dictionary, they seem to be both in agreement. Uh, it's a communal kind of, uh, I, I guess, not to use the word again, communication on how to relate. Or I, I would say signaling is, uh, is, an, is a synonym for it. Like as if, uh, you know, commonly someone would be uh, traveling in the street and someone signals to stop by putting their palm, you know, gesticulating up towards the person who want they want to stop and you do so and you take it as a communication meaning to stop. Um, imagery, right, can communicate. Uh, very often when you see a, a something in red or a cross or an X or a circle with a universal line, a red circle with a red line through it, meaning not. So these these are various uh, concepts that are already seemingly understood, but in order to to go through it in Greek speak fashion, or let's say the more purposeful, um, would be uh, based on the communications that people are used to, and even just the word itself. Uh, I would suggest that uh, taking it for granted 
is what most people do, and I would suggest that it requires translation. And when I mean that, I mean literally. And uh, very often when I say that, people will say, uh, well, we use the word translation when we take information from one language that we don't understand and transferring it over so we can understand it in a language that we do understand, uh, as in the basic term. And I mean translation in the form of the same language that you are using. Uh, an example would be what's being communicated uh at, uh, to the public at large by uh, what you call institutions, you know, government, school, uh, authority, religious authority, scientific authority, on and on and on. Uh, you cannot take what they're saying as it is. It needs to be translated. So uh, how, how is that concept of translation and communication uh, uh, working uh, for your question? Um, yeah, it's a good start. I mean, what what comes to mind for me is what the purpose of the translation serves. Why is it that there is an obscuring of the actual meaning at the source that it would even need to be translated? Well, because, you, you know, it's very difficult to do anything that's intended to be for public uh, distribution or expression or consumption without um, uh, involving the society that's listening. You know, for example, this sonic event or this stream at large, I think it's most useful to uh, maybe delve into the, communi the communication uh, requiring translation and meaning that even though it is the same language, it still needs to, in other words, extract, you need to extract what's really being said versus what, a, uh, what someone would take as in passing. For example, when people are communicating, uh, they try to uh, keep it very simple in colloquial terms and to get things done, you know, like hand me the shovel uh, or good morning or uh, where are you going? Right? We try to keep that uh, very simple and, and uh, so society can function. But uh, there's another level of it where when people are listening to, uh, uh, let's say, information or hearing information, very few people know how to listen. And we might go into that because um, that's essential for translating uh, what's being said is when you're getting uh, authoritative uh information or signaling being communicated that's outside the most basic rudimentary function like a stop sign a traffic light or uh, something like that very basic it requires translation meaning what does it really mean what are they really saying to us it is hidden uh, very much of the time um, and uh, you may not be able to extract what it really means uh, what's being told to you by, let's say, religious authority, government authority, scientific authority, medical authority, even by translation, um, you may not get the, the truth out of it, but you will discern whether it's hogwash or not, right? Uh, well, a quick example of it would be you turn on the television or the radio or the, the news media, and uh, when they give you, let's say, a critical event, whether it's their act of terror or a murder or some crime or something that's uh, it's always allegedly right you ever notice they say allegedly right or suspect uh, now if you understand what those words mean it's just a presumption but when the people hear that and you ask them well what just happened they'll tell you as if it's fact you see so what I'm trying to say here is from a day-to-day point of view, the, the, the common people try to communicate to signal and, commu and again, relay to each other some kind of intent to get something done. Uh, 
But when you're getting a communication from an authority, and I'm not being anti-authority, uh, very carefully crafted, by the way, by the legal society, that requires to be uh, requires a, a lot of translation because uh, the way people take it and, the, and what is actually being broadcast or communicated are two very different things. And I guess that, again, results to show the schism of who's paying attention and who's not. Yeah, and that's very much tied to the overall theme, and I think we'll explore it some more. Another thing to consider is that most things, if not all things, have a quantitative and a qualitative side. So even though it's commonly known that consumer technology has created information overload on the quantitative side, what would you say constitutes an effective versus a poor communication qualitatively? Again, it goes back to the mindset. We've discussed that before. Uh, very commonly, most people would see the quality of the communication be as being high because they're not listening to what's being said or they can't translate it. Like I mentioned earlier, very often what will be put out as a story or news item or uh, whatever piece of history will always be shown as being in a, in a presumptive light. It's always an allegation or a suspect, but the people will take it as being fact. You know, give an example. On 9-11, they never said that Osama bin Laden was the culprit for that event. They said they alleged him as being as such. But if you go on the street and you ask anyone, you know, what happened on 9-11, they'll say Osama bin Laden blew up the towers. And you say, are you sure? And they'll say, yes, well, that information was never put out that way. And the same goes for pretty much everything. If, uh, if, if someone uh, is at large or, or you know, the authorities are looking for someone whose dog, rabid dog, let's say, bit a bunch of people, it's always suspect and allegedly bit people. But the people take it as if that really happened. And the point is not whether it really happened or not. The point is what's being communicated and how the people receive it. So initially, they view it, uh, if you're not uh, deeming that these communications need translation, you view them quantitatively and qualitatively very high, right? But once you see that actually what's being said is, is there's really not much there at all, you actually start viewing as the quality and the quantity as being very low, right? Now, the other thing, the, uh, if one maintains to... Uh, produce high quality and high quantity, let's say quantity, good quantity and good quality uh, communication, it's, it's out of the norm from what people are used to hearing in society at large. And they will sort of um, say, well, that guy sounds nerdy or he sounds too book smart or that's too factual or I don't really like that, you see. So again, this uh, aspect of presumption is what people are used to and uh it's interesting to watch uh because basically they're taking things and you know threads and ideas and fantasies uh, uh and turning them into solid concrete things in their minds when there there's nothing to say that it should be that way and again this is just tying back to the way people receive the information or process it which i think we might have gone into in the past that people aren't really listening, they're hearing things, and when they receive a uh, stimulus through the ear or the eye, especially after adolescence, uh, they, they don't really discern what they're hearing or seeing. They're just trying to take uh, the initial part of that stimulus and attach it to things that, out of memory, you know, things that they've already experienced up until about 9 or 12 years old, right? So... Very often you'll see that in conversation. People, someone will bring something up. So have you ever heard of this? And the person will say yes. 
and it's and they don't need to hear anymore they think because they received enough stimulus that it it recalled something in their memory files where it might have been slightly different and they might have mistaken it as something they've already known. Or clearly, if they haven't heard of it, now that a uh, little bit of a conundrum because they'll, they'll come to a drawing point and say, well, I haven't heard of it and I'm not interested. Or I've never heard of that and gosh, you know, more, I have to do more now to learn about something else. You see, so that's basically the human uh, on this, basically on Earth, how they function. So once you understand that, you'll see that what is being communicated again through the religious community, scientific, uh, the government authorities, medical, all of the main institutions, university, they don't have to be very accurate. They don't have to communicate um, uh, truth. They don't have to communicate um, uh, anything of uh, that is even edifying. They just have to communicate to satisfy the situation. And, you know, so... If we're going to look at uh, communication again, uh, how to translate is, a, is an entirely different sonic or stream because we can spend hours uh, on that. But I would just invite anyone to consider to listen very carefully to what's put in front of them, what input they're getting. And they'll notice that what most people walk away uh, uh, as thinking of what they heard is not what really what's being said. Mm. And if we not only limit ourselves to talk about institutional to the masses communication, but also include person-to-person -person communication, what kind of value or damage would you say could be generated by communicating well versus communicating poorly? Like, what's at stake in the quality of how people communicate in general? Okay, essentially, uh, people are, what they, you've heard of the term visual kinesthetic, meaning the uh, you, when you hear something or when communication is being done, you should be able to get a picture of what's being said. And I mean that literally in your mind, uh, you know, a visual on it, not just an abstract concept. Uh, like, for example, the word nothing is one of the most difficult things to communicate because it's very difficult for someone to paint a picture of what nothing is, right? So uh, very often, I, especially with young children, if I were, let's say, uh, be put in charge of educating them, I would always um, uh, teach them or have them develop a discipline, let's say, where when they're communicating and speaking to other people, it actually creates a visual image of what they're saying, right? Uh, or puts a picture in the other person's mind. And I mean that literally. Um, so uh, I would say that uh, other than the basic, most basic uh, uh, communications that I see people having in their day-to-day -day lives, whether it's friends and family or, or even co-workers or whatever, is on a very, very basic level. Unless there are pre-designed pre and pre-acknowledged uh, 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 precepts that have been set in place before, you know, which you'll find mostly in technical situations, right? Like shop situations, like a car mechanic will have a different set of communication than a than a nurse in a hospital or uh, whatever. Now, the, the the most basic communications that you see uh, people have can actually be mimicked and reduced by grunts and moans uh, that actually communicate the same thing, right? And I mean that literally. Um, uh, someone might say, would you like some? And the other person may not even, you might just wave their head from left to right and go, mm-mm, right? It's a very, and that means no. So basically from the basic grunts and moans to up, down, yes, no, thank you, please, give me this, take that, uh, that is what most people are engaged in uh, of all walks of life. So I think when we say communication, I think it's a little bit, a little bit larger and, and you're going to have to breach or broach the social concept of it. 
which is why I went into the aspect of it requiring translation. Right. Um, something that comes to mind for me is that I've long had the sense that the vocabulary of these times don't serve the needs. Like, I see that as far back as the 60s, where many of the counterculture movements for all their protests were really unable to formulate the heart of their issues. And also at that time, we see the rise of things like entertainment-driven punditry, thanks to the Gore Vidal versus William F. Buckley debate in 68. And we know that that kind of medium is resistant to effective communication. So fast forward to the present, where those things have become standardized, people now have a preference for vague rhetoric that lacks definitions, which I think confounds the whole purpose of communicating. How does such a development progress so uninhibited over the decades where people lose track of how to say things clearly? Well, let, let's put it this way. Uh, you, I, it's called dumbing down, and I call it dumbing up because the dumbing is increasing, so it's not. It's right, so it's being dumbed up. Uh, just, just consider this for a moment. Uh, this, this is an abstract thought within the conversation we're having. The amount of damage uh, that that has been done to society in the past hundred years regarding quote unquote their education level or their comprehension level if we were to classify it as an entire generation has been dumbed up uh, by the education system, society, and their traditions and culture that's accepted it, as it stands right now, I would suggest strongly it would take over a thousand years to recover from the present condition. Uh, let me just repeat that whole concept again. The full generation, maybe two generations that have been dumbed down worldwide in the past hundred years will not recover from uh, any social change, let's say in the next 5, 10, 20 years, or any effort that can be made uh, to change it within anyone's lifetime. It will take over a thousand years to restore any kind of sensibility or rationale that might have been, let's say, pre-hundred years ago. This is how critical this uh, concept of dumbing down is that no one is, has ever really brought up. You know, uh, you'll hear a lot of... Um, discussion on how people have been dumbed down and they think, well, maybe we'll just reform our education system and people will get smarter again. No, they won't accept it. It'll take over a thousand years minimum to do it, maybe never. So this is just from a secular point of view. Uh, and this has been proven through history. If you look at the most of the traditions that people engaged in, are, which are just dumb, uh, uh, they were put in place thousands of years ago basically over a thousand years ago, and people still do it and don't know why. And it didn't take very long to put these things in place, over maybe 40 years or less. So if you are looking at uh, the needs of communication and how things are being communicated and what is being communicated, uh, from a, a necessity point of view, other than the direct physical necessities that people have, the rest of it has to be viewed at uh, viewed as uh, a culture by culture, society by society basis. You know, other than I'm hungry, I need food. Okay, we all understand that no matter how dumb you are, let's say. Uh, so when I mean dumb, I don't mean uh, lack of uh, <laughs> conventional schooling. It, it actually means how much of you've accepted the cultural norms in whatever society you're living in. But anyway... Uh, I don't see uh, anything other than commenting on the on a cross-sectional profile of the existing condition at uh, any time in, let's say, my lifetime, because don't expect anything to get better in, in that respect. Because once the 
again, this might be a little bit off the question, but once a society is quote unquote dumbed down, I call dumbed up because there's more dumbing, uh, it does not recover within that uh, time frame. It, it, it may never recover or it would take a minimum of a, of a thousand years minimum or more, maybe 2000 to recover. Now, there is a way to recover a, situ a situation like that, and uh, it, it's very drastic, very draconian. Uh, it would require a level of harshness that most people cannot even imagine. An example of it would be, um, let's say, in the biblical story of Exodus, you have a culture of slaves, and yet they cannot be set and be reformed to take on an independent life or a life of freedom on their own. So they're kept in an area, uh, sort of uncivilized area, called the wilderness, for 40 years until the people that were brought up in slavery died off. So their offspring can go in, you see. Meaning, when you have a society that is so dumbed down as it is now, anywhere in the world, the Western world, especially what they call America or the United States, is most definitely the worst. Um, you, the only way to fix it in less than a thousand years was is to separate the young people, the children, from their parents, and uh, let's say properly educate them. You can't have them going back to their grandma or uh, elders in society, or parents, or uncles, or even older friends or influences, because the the influence will be uh, negative. You see. It'll be contrasting. So it can be fixed in less than a thousand years, but it won't happen that way, you see. No, I get what you're saying. Right. But let's also try to address one small point in the question, which is that these things go, even if when they go challenged, the effect still comes to pass regardless of who says anything. So what I'm wondering is that you said, for example, 40 years, let's just take it as 40 years, whether it's 40 or 50 or 60. But how is it that during that time, that it takes to enforce a new type of substandard norm that nobody does anything to change it. I mean, anyone with an iota of intelligence can see it happening. And, you know, when I look back, I can see a lot of books that were written in the 60s, 70s and 80s about the fact that the mass media was stupid. Like some examples are Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. And I can think of Dumbing Us Down by John Taylor Gato. The people write the books, the books go on, to, some of them become bestsellers. And yet we're still in the position that we're in, which is a bit of a puzzling thing. Well, uh, the we is very interesting because there's always been a, a society within a society within a society, and there's always been secrets within uh, secret societies as well, and things like that that try to uh, operate with, all together, seeming like a big mass in society, but separately, right? You, you can see there's a discernment in social, I wouldn't say class systems, but uh, ideologies that tend to separate themselves within a culture, unless it's a draconian culture that tries to go target those individuals. But to go back in, uh, from a literary point of view, uh, here in the Western world, especially what they call the United States of America and the states, uh, there was a, a, a tremendous boom of what's called yellow journalism in the 19th century, meaning like the most senseless uh, things you can ever imagine in print that the people uh, enjoyed reading and purchasing and buying as newspapers or indulging in as in as various forms of communication and information and that went on and uh, um, uh, because of its sensational nature people were attracted to it and then it was adopted by the authority figures right if you look at uh, every aspect of a culture a 
or social authority, uh, basically they're putting out nonsense now, even people in from university degrees, which I do enjoy encountering from time to time. And I always ask them what they've studied, and I just pick their stuff apart. And, and you know, especially when they're on a graduate level and they get very frustrated because they don't want to admit that they've been defrauded. But uh, anyway, uh, I would say that um, uh, if you go back uh, through any recorded period in time, there's always been a class of people, meaning the majority, that did not want to be uh, did not want to be uh, edified or wanted purity in in word or purity in thought, purity in communication. So this this is part of the human history, known human history. Yeah, I guess that does touch a bit on some of the things we talked about last week. I'm also seeing increasingly that many people today, especially those in the elite classes, haven't been faced with the necessity of having to say exactly what they mean, which touches on what we talked about last week as well about the proper mindset. So because of that, people's language ends up becoming sort of impenetrable because of how it's full of contradictory meanings. And you can't really trust that someone knows what they're saying or that their actions will line up with their words. Because when you insist on them being clear, they'd rather say, well, you know what I mean, or you're just nitpicking over semantics. What would you say is the source and consequence of that kind of mentality? What you, what you see, a level of inefficiency that you see uh, in anything in society right now, industry, uh, you know every you know every aspect of their culture. I mean, the, the question there might be: What level of efficiency do you need at a minimum for society or the culture to still function? Uh, in other words, would would twenty percent suffice? In other words, if eighty percent of what they did was wasteful, only twenty percent percent mattered. Can a culture still function? Right? Uh, or is it half? You know, fifty percent. Let's say. And they waste 50% of everything they do, you see. So I would say that the level of efficiency is very, very, very low. I, I like using automobiles, what they call automobiles. They're really engine-driven wagons. They're not even motor vehicles unless they're electric because an electric motor, gas-driven engine. But anyway, those are really uh, a very simple example. Of, for example, I like going to car dealerships, and, I, and uh, they're very happy if I'm dressed well and groomed well, they approach you right away thinking you're a potential uh, customer. If you wake up out of bed and uh, you just go right to the car dealer in a holy t-shirt, sweatpants, and flip-flops, they ignore you, by the way. They're very uh, prejudicial that way. I just wanted to bring that out as an experiment that I do with young people to show them how they should present themselves. But nonetheless, when you go to a car dealer, uh, I like uh, uh, kind of build them up and then pull the rug from under them because they deserve it, by the way. Uh, some of them might even be ex-attorneys. But uh, nonetheless, I ask them, this is the brand new model, this current year or next year's model. And they're very proud to say yes, and it's much better. And I'm like, well, it's it's very it's different from last year. And they're like, oh, yeah, it's very different. Okay, so so every year you say the the consecutive year is different. So that means you guys really haven't figured out how to make cars yet, right? And he's like, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, I went and bought a hammer and uh, at the hardware store, and it was identical to a hammer that I have from my granddad from 75 years ago. And obviously they figured out how to make hammers 75 years ago, and they don't have a new model now, do they? Do you see my point? So, in other words, the design of the hammer is a, is a far more established effort of efficiency because it's not changing anymore. 
I mean, of course, there's going to be maybe shock absorbent uh, treatments and better levels of manufacturing, but they haven't changed for a long time because it was established this is the uh, the highest form of, of implement, right? Where if you look at an automobile, now if you look at it a little bit more discerning what they call a car, even an electric car, by the way, you'll see that it's 100-year-old technology at a minimum, reciprocating engine and all, very wasteful, uh, very heavy and either the efforts uh, to get away from such a device have been stifled, of course, by the, you might qu call them elite. And, uh, they seem to have settled on this level of inefficiency. Now, the reason I gave this example of, the, of what they call cars or automobiles, or I like to call engine-driven wagons, is because this is going on throughout, whether it's uh, the medical, the technological at, at large, um, religious, again, governmental, uh, all this stuff is highly inefficient by design because it is better to be inefficient. This is just now uh, uh, not a direct quote, but an indirect quote from people that are, let's say, running the world. It is better to be inefficient and stable than more efficient and unstable, right? Like unknowing. Just like we mentioned the example earlier, if you wanted to get people out of a society, out of a dumbed out uh, condition, you really have to separate the children from the older people, parents, uncles, grandparents, uh, neighbors, uh, and educate them properly, right? And if I know someone squirming in their chair listening to this, wherever they are, I'll say, well, what's proper, right? Uh, always get that. But, uh, and it would be very harsh, uh, right? So <clears throat> the, the change that you... Um, or to expect uh, in any society, it will will be very radical if it's real change. I would suggest that um, uh, the the old stuff. There's nothing really new, uh, and the old stuff just gets rehashed over, which is basically obsolescence and inefficiency. And it's by design because it's better to have things that are in place that everyone knows and there's stability. Hmm. A lot of what you said touches on. The, the consequence of the things that I mentioned, that because people are lazy, you get this inefficiency as a result, and then it spreads and becomes standardized. Let's also not um, neglect to look at the source of it. So when someone says, well, you're just nitpicking over semantics when you insist that I should say something in an accurate way, what is at the heart of that? And what is it that people are trying to guard themselves from when they say that? Like, it's almost like they don't want to say what they mean, but they expect you to understand them anyway. Well, they're protecting, even though most people will say, yes, it is dumb. Yes, we are dumb as a society. Yes, the movies are stupid and the schools don't teach anything. But, you know, they still follow through and support all those things because it is an evil that they're familiar with. You'll hear this in politics. Better the devil you know than the devil you don't know. It's very simple. You know, and, and it's counterintuitive to think uh, beyond what is the social norm for most people. Yeah, I think we'll probably end up revisiting that a bit more too. But let's now move into the one of the subcategories within communication, which is language. So one of the best ways to tell if you're communicating something well is if it's understandable and memorable to the listener, I think. But there's a visible division in the West about how to achieve that. So for most of the modern era, the primary tool for sharing your thoughts has been language and literature where you wield your words as expressively as possible to convey a point. But as the New Age and other subjective-minded movements have gained steam since the 50s, if not the 20s with the Western Buddhist explosion, 
the idea of language being an effective tool has gradually been switched out for using shared emotions or shared experiences as a vehicle for communication instead. And I think some examples are what we see with recreational drug use or secularized Eastern practices like group yoga and things of that nature. So I want to know why the power of effective language has become so discounted in favor of these other things, even though throughout history, language has been the most prominent communication instrument. Well, those other things are also subject to the to the dilution, let's say, or dumbing up or dumbing down of uh, of language also. Like, for example, uh, if you ask people what is yoga uh, or what is the Hindu culture, you know, um, uh, they'll give you an answer that is couldn't be farther from the reality of it. Right. Right. Yes, there's the sense that people don't necessarily understand what certain words mean. But to look specifically at the reality, right, not just the fact that people don't understand words, they've moved away from generally a word-based form of communication to an experiential thing, where it's more popular to just have an unspoken understanding, even though that understanding is, is erroneous. Is that a development, you know, as an older person that you, that you saw coming, that you saw sort of taking place? That is the limitation of the spirit dwelling in a physical state. You know, the, the, the mind or the spirit is, it can be, if the mind is very disciplined, uh, at odds with what the body wants and vice versa, right? If someone is, uh, for example, uh, uh, trying to pursue a high moral ground, they'll find uh, uh, being sexually attracted to someone that they shouldn't be to be very difficult uh, physically and mentally, where someone, for example, who doesn't have a high moral ground uh, might be sexually attracted, meaning sexual attraction, meaning the physical aspect of it, uh, and have no problem pursuing it, you see, because the, the, the spirit or the mind is not developed uh, and disciplined. So in essence, um, the, the desires, the physical desires in expressing themselves as, uh, you know, as such, just physical desires manifested through the physical, is, is one of the signs of a very base culture or base uh, state of being. And is there anything to be said for the fact that chasing after an experiential forum to commune with people is like a cop-out because it absolves you of having to say things in a certain way or to be specific with your speech? No, I don't think that uh, it's either one or the other. I think it's 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 that when when there's lack of discipline or let's say uh, ed, let's just use the word education. I'm using it loosely. Um, uh, a well-rounded individual, uh, they will uh, if they lack that, for example, uh, they tend to go after the physical stuff. Let's just take, for example, a cliche of of a commoner in the Western world. Uh, they pretty much grunt and moan to communicate. They have a very simple language. They're attracted to sports, which is very physical, right? And to get even to that uh, be, beyond uh, the sports aspect, uh, the, the bloodier the sport and the more physical, the better. Uh, their form of entertainment tends to be more action violence-based, horror-based, right? They can't uh, handle cerebral storylines or film or art. Uh, they're going to be uh, uh, pursuing superficial physical trinkets and, and um, stimulation, you know, uh, that will, you know, eventually lead to, uh, again, uh, limiting them, their, themselves to a physical nature of existence. So the, the more physical, let's say carnal-minded individuals, the masses at large, 
they're always going to go for the physical aspect. You know, they'll they'll always want to watch a TV show or a film than read a book, for example. You know, and because let's just look at it from a comprehension point of view, it would make no sense for the public at large to study uh, or read books or study information because they lack the comprehension. Where if they are watching, let's say, a uh, an action film, the level of comprehension there, I mean, uh, even pets in the room will stop and look at the screen. You know, the dog and the cat will wonder what all that action and sound is, you see. Hmm. Another aspect, I think, of today's language that's worth highlighting is how definitions have become twisted. And perhaps, to be fair, that contributes to people's aversion against relying on their words because they might feel that certain words don't mean what they've been told, and yet some of those words are the ones which possess the most influence. So words like democracy, freedom, or rights, and things like that, um, I think those kinds of words coalesce a lot of aspirational sentiments, and yet they're largely devoid of their original concepts today. So how does something like that come about Greek, where not only does an important word lose its meaning, but in some cases it flips into its opposite? Well, it's just, just like you said. I think what you just said should be contemplated by many. I mean, it's very easy to evidence that uh, things are not being used well, I mean, things, those things being words. But yet, again, let's go back to the concept of uh, efficiency. Uh, what does it take to maintain a stable society? Not a good society, a stable one. 20% um, efficiency, 30% efficiency. In other words, have 80% of the words lost their meaning? I would say more than that. You know, but yet things still function, right? You don't see utter chaos and destruction yet uh, when you go out your door. Yeah, but I, I would uh, I would suggest that anyone find out what words mean uh, for self-edification. It doesn't mean you're going to end up being happy about it because you'll notice that the people around you don't know any don't know what they're talking about, right? But yet still thing you know th things still get done. You've brought up the question several times about semantics. Well, you know. Well, that's what you believe in, or that's I'm using the word a different way, or whatever. Uh, yeah, that's a level of efficiency again. Uh, a good one in the English language is the word "nice." People use it frequently to mean something pleasant or good, or a blessing or a, a well wishing on another person. Have a nice day. But the word actually means, in reality, as the word was structured to be used, meaning foolish, stupid, and senseless. So that that is a, a very um, stark contrast, you know, that, that's an easy one to look up, and then you might be in dismay if you continue studying. Now, reading or uh, making yourself uh, available to information is very different than studying the information. I hope uh, that's clear to people, right? So, in essence, uh, the concept of word study will not make you happy at the end of the day, but you, you might feel more rest assured that you know what things are uh, supposed to mean and what the right thing is or the right definition for a word is. And I think one of the, at least in my mind, the pushbacks that people give towards this kind of um, the elaboration that you just gave is that, well, words can mean different things or the dictionary says such and such. And so it's easy to sort of get caught in a closed loop of conversation there where what is the proper reference for what the words mean anyway? And there is something to be said for the fact that language is malleable, but as far as having a fixed reference for those things, there's no consensus, really. Well, there's, uh, yes, there is and there isn't, like you said. The, there is no consensus, really. Uh, when 
the social aspect of it and the tradition and the culture accept it, then then that's pretty much locked. Like the word nice, for example. Most cultures, most societies will in, in the English speaking tongue will will say the word nice means something pleasant or good. But I don't see um I don't ever see there ever being a division where any part of uh society will use words accurately and the other uh will not and uh you know this is where the people say what they mean and mean what they say and this is the side of the town where the people don't know what they're saying uh that will never happen um within the society unless it's going to be used as a, uh, in a weaponized form a, a good example of that where which is a, a society within society that is taking it to the next level would be the legal society um they're a group of nasties that most societies have had for the past few thousand years. It's a seriously depraved individuals uh, that uh, call themselves attorneys or part of the legal system, which, mind you, has nothing to do with law. And uh, they, they've developed uh, uh, seemingly commonly sounding words that have uh, total, totally different and irrelevant meaning to what people consider those words to have, like the word person or the word legal or the word crime or the word commercial uh, don't mean anything of what uh, people on the everyday street do, but the legal society uses it against them. That's why, for example, when people go into what's called judicial settings, they feel like they just went into Alice in Wonderland, like what just happened here? Why are they not listening to me, right? Uh, so that is one aspect of it. The other one is the scientific community. The uh, sci scientific community is uh, very notorious about uh, when they don't understand a process or something in nature or, uh, or within their scope of study, they make up a term to, that fulfills um, not only a made-up term, but fulfills their way of uh, explaining or describing what's going on. A good one is electron or photon. You've heard those terms mentioned before. If anyone has even taken eighth grade science, those things don't exist. Uh, there are many scientists that have gone on record saying, well, if we don't understand a phenomenon, we just make up terms to describe it, fictional things, you know. So uh, that is another way to look at it. Uh, the governments uh, of the world tend to do that also. They speak in circular forms. Uh, they do very careful studies when... Uh, officials of the administrations make public speaking that the what they're saying um, is in a circular form. In other words, uh, you can listen to a, a speech from a, any government official anywhere in the world in any time through history, pretty much, and uh, it sounds very good. But if you ask, uh, even if it's a 20-second speech or a two-hour speech, if you ask anyone listening to it, what did he say? You really don't know what was said. I mean, something good, hopefully. Right, so it goes on and on. The religious stuff is utmost, really, <laughs> utmostly ridiculous. Um, you know, that's we'll, we'll probably get into that in the future. Uh, so, I think the weaponization of language is really what most people are not aware of, uh, other than the meanings of the words. Hmm. And just to revisit a point, because I think there's a bit more that we can flesh out there. Is there something that should be especially noted about how? the most important words that shape people's broadest understanding of the world, like, for example, democracy, are visibly being de demonstrated to not be in line with reality. Like, on one hand, many Western countries are said to be democracies, but something like the U.S. was evidently created to be a republic, and then allegedly oligarchs and lobbyists buy so much influence in Western countries that it undermines the democracy, so why aren't these concepts challenged on their face? 
That is an interesting aspect in history. If you take the what's called the U.S. or America, very specifically, you know, if we're if we're not going to be myopic, uh, myopic or amnesia or believe the crap that we're being told, you can go do a little bit of study. And there was the term democracy was a very unfamiliar term here. It was uh, really heavily pushed by FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He says, we are now a democracy. Actually, I was at a thrift store about a year ago, and there was a poster someone was selling there from the 1930s about that. It had a picture of him and uh, FDR uh, saying that we are now in a democracy in big letters underneath. You know, it was like a new thing, just like terrorism is a new thing. You know, now, uh, more than 20 years ago, there were no terrorists. You're either a revolutionary or a hijacker or an assailant or, or there was no, the word was not in common use as it is now. So the concept of democracy also, if it's coming out of a uh, administrative form, these are just administrative officials, by the way. They work for the owners. Um, uh, the absentee owners uh, of the of the sovereign states, which are not nations, but anyway, that's another discussion again. Uh, I would suggest that um, when you get information from uh, administrations or governments anywhere in the world, those are carefully crafted in legalese. So when they talk about the people, they're not talking about you, right? They're talking about the people of the administration. This is also very clear if you look at any of the codes of any of the laws, which um, if you spend 10 minutes looking, looking at the definitions of laws in any law book of any country, you'll know more than even the highest judges in the land because they're not allowed to acknowledge it. But you'll find out that uh, in the definitions of the laws, what the, you know, they actually provide a definition section. You'll see what I'm saying is true. Uh, it's a very limited access uh, concept, right? So when you hear democracy, it's democratic, it's a very limited access concept. In other words, you don't have access to it because you've been denied, uh, let's say, the rights of ownership. There is no more, you're not allowed to own anything anymore in the world uh, at large, pretty much. Maybe if the Pashtuns in Afghanistan can, uh, people in the mountains maybe if they can defend it. But uh, for example, if you are not allowed to own anything and you're just pretty much a resident, right? Uh, you have no money. You don't need any money because ownership is impossible legally, right? If you don't believe that, if you think you have a house, it doesn't say you own it, you're a tenant. If you think you have a car, you're an, own you're an operator. You know, uh, you don't even own the children that you have. Ownership meaning that they are yours beyond just possession rights. Right. If they have, you have a birth certificate on the child, right, you don't have. So so how can something like democracy uh, apply to people that have pretty much been depraved and deprived of anything that is considered mutually beneficial? Right. Uh, it just uh, is just bizarre. I think uh, considering, well, you, you could read Alice in Wonderland or something like that. A bizarre world. Uh, again, consider how efficient. um does a society have to be to remain stable, right? Is it 20% efficient, 50% efficient, you know, and you have to figure democracy into that. I think that people have been uh, de deceived willingly. That's what they want. Uh, most people will say, well, Greek doesn't make any sense because I don't want to be deceived. Well, you have been and you seem to be attracted to it. Uh, so uh, that's just a simple cross-section uh, description of what's going on. Most people enjoy uh, the comforts of 
things that sound good and uh, for them to discover what they really are about or what they really mean is very uncomfortable. So they would always lean towards what makes them comfortable, you see. No, that, that provides a lot of food for thought there. Um, so everyone has things that they want to say, but I think that finding the best way to say it is more than half the battle. So let's wrap up this bit on language by contrasting two eras to look at that idea a bit. I think that at least once in each episode thus far, the subject of the Renaissance has been brought up, usually in not so flattering a light, but for whatever blemishes you'd say that that era has, I think its most lasting merits have always been the stylistic aspects of its art and its literature. So even if you want to say that the content is erroneous, the aesthetic quality of the rhetoric of that time has really never successfully been discredited, and I think many of its forms continued well into the 20th century where it eventually starts to fall off because of consumer-driven mass media. So my question is, what credit should be given to how incisive the language of the 16th to 19th century were for communicating interesting ideas? What's interesting about that is that if you think society was really bad off, is bad off now, let's say, as a general cross-section, it was even worse back then to a degree. I would say uh, over 95%... Uh, conservatively liberally 99% of the population of the earl of the world were basically primitive peasants it's not very different how they are now let's say from that perspective but now they have a little bit more access and less constraint in travel and things like that right where back then if you mentioned uh, someone in the western world something about china that they, they they simply dismissed it as being a mythology it doesn't exist you see what i mean uh, where now it's evident that, you know, you go buy things in the Western world is made in China. Well, you know, it's not fantasy. There's a place over there where people make things. So uh, the people were um, uh, very, very primitive uh, in a sense that um, uh, shouldn't be regarded as anything uh, just limited to that era. It also was in other eras as well. So it would be very easy to contrast something, a bunch of people putting things together that looked real pretty and sounded real good and supposedly advanced certain things as a renaissance. So I don't see as I, I see it as an area of uh, I see the renaissance and anyone that would study it where certain controls were put in place and limitations were put in place. But the, the texts do still exist, or at least translations, alleged translations exist that we can examine. And it's very easy to see that the level of um, rhetoric that's being applied there is beyond the level of what most people can even read today. Like you could, you can't read original Shakespeare today, the average high school student. Like they can read simplified translations. Like it's very clear that that's a, co a completely different level of constructing language though. Right. You would say that uh, at that time you had more of a, it was more of a proto-English even at the time of Shakespeare, English might have only been around for a few hundred years. I think the earliest evidence of English we have, as we know, it would be Chaucer, right? Go back another, what was it, 1000 AD, 1200 AD or something like that. And Shakespeare was later. He was in the 1600s, right, I believe, and um, uh, late 1500s or so. Uh, I would say that's still the old, what the, as it is today coined as Old English, it's a mishmash of Germanic, Gaul, you know, French and various other uh, tribal languages mishmashed together to be more universal for empire, 
you see, because when you have an empire, the, the language tends to smooth out a little bit. Look at Spanish, for example. Right? You have the, uh, the Spain spreading throughout South America and other parts of the world, and the language had to have been smoothed out to a degree for it to take hold as a colonial, uh, you know, part of the colonial culture. Right. So the English, uh, I would say, is much smoother uh, beginning around the mid to the late 18th century. Sure, smoother, but also as far as being a vehicle for communicating ideas when you read the works of, you know, certain people like um, Adidaro or Geoffrey Chaucer mm -hmm. or um, Machiavelli. Like these are not on the level of the type of bestsellers that are being put forth today as worthwhile consumption. Well, right. The ideas that they are conveying are at least sophisticated on their face, even if you want to say that they're erroneous at their heart. I would suggest they had yellow journalism back then pumping through the the masses. Uh, I would suggest that um, the men that we know about and women, let's say that uh, were in producing high forms of language uh, art. Uh, or memorializing texts, you know, uh, they didn't do it on their own. Uh, they had patrons. And in order to have a patron, you have to satisfy the needs of the patron. So you would look that there were dukes, uh, earls, probably even monarchies involved uh, that summoned uh, commissioned works of these people. Um, so they would have to satisfy their needs, which was, would be more of the higher culture. I, I would suggest that uh, the, the people we just mentioned or represent uh, such a small less than one percent of the people at the time and of course it's it's canonized it's, you know it's put up as as a high form of you know uh culture because most cultures tend to do that they're going to try to put their best stuff forward to represent what they are when in essence the the majority of it is very primitive and crude as you can see today hmm well, you're certainly very resolute about maintaining that nothing good came out of that time. <laughs> well, I, I, um, I say the same thing with Greek philosophy. It was If it was so good, how well has it served you today? And it has not. You care to develop that a bit? Well, yeah. Uh, well, there's not much to it. Uh, you, you have to accommodate. You see, you, you have the masses. So you're either going to say... Uh, we have let, let's here's a hypothetical example, which is actually more than hypothetical. This is really how things a good cross section of how things really are. When you look at uh, a geographic location, whether it's uh, uh, subdivided like something like Europe or an island nation or, you know, something that's separated by oceans or whatever, you have a, a large group or quote unquote masses of people and those ruling them say, well, do we are we satisfied or, or do we want to or do we want to change this? You see, uh, now the way the masses are always the masses are always going to demand what accommodates them. All right. So uh, he give you an example today. If you uh, uh, ask the masses, would you rather have a, a, a sports holiday or go to school? Right. Or study day. Ninety nine point nine 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 percent would say we'll have a sports holiday. So now the sport could be blood sport, and basically the dumber and the more vile, the better. So the, the, the people that run the monarchies, or the even now you have the owners or shareholders, the elite that own the monarchies, they look and say, well, how much more longer do we want to accommodate this? And they are accommodating it. Now, if they want to change it, it's not going to change. 
you can change it within that confine, but to change it and quote unquote elevate it, let's say to a higher form of thinking, those people can't exist any longer. They, you can't have them around. You see, that's why you have all of the conspiracy theories that you hear in the past few decades, starting in the 90s. Oh, the elite one who will reduce the population of the world to 500 million, you know, from 7 billion or 6 billion or 5 billion back then. You see, the people, you know, uh, are either the, you hear this often in their language. Um, I will defend to the death your right to say what you want to say. And they never think of that someone might accommodate them. So, in other words, uh, nothing has changed. The earth is a very brutal place, and in order to evolve a society, uh, it, it has to be done. Uh, in other words, to make a society better, you, have you ever heard out with the old and in with the new? That's a literal um, description. The, o- the other way to do it, again, is um, as you have new burgeoning uh, generations, you know, the new generation comes up, you have to separate them to not be polluted by the old. Right. That's where you have the discrete, you know, how do you think it'll go over if um, the elite or the people that run the world, which is not your government, by the way, wherever you are, doesn't matter what country you are. Maybe Somalia, uh, the people there, warlords or the Congo are really running as the thing. But anywhere else in the world, all the other 200 countries or so, no, no, what you think is who you think your government is, is just a it's just an office, an administrative office. They make no decisions there at all. Um, that's assured for sure. So how do you, how well do you think it would go if, uh, there was an announcement made a gradual softening of the population to comprehend this, uh, or a softening, uh, through, uh, media enticement or brainwashing or mind control to say that from now on, uh, given at a certain date, when people have children, they will be uh, taken away and raised in a, a, a town or a camp or a facility uh, and you'll never see them again until they're adults. How well do you think that'll? Um, how well do you think that'll go? And what I'm telling you right now is actually what those that rule your planet are thinking, and I've been thinking for a very long time since the 20s. You know, they say it with privilege, education, privilege, lifestyle, and they're like, "Well, is this what it means to be human? Let's let's go in disguise and go out in the street and look at how these people are." doesn't matter even the most advanced uh, culture that you think is advanced which would be western europe or asia and they're just primitive and dumb right so how how else are how you, these people are not that's why for example if you study the world wars you're like that's total bovine excrement why those wars started it was just a culling can we reduce the world's population through war right there's no, there was no reason. You can't show any feasible or rational reason for any of the world wars or any of the wars in the past mm, 200 years, right? So, uh, and, and just a message to those people that uh, you hear very often on the, uh, I call it the stupid rectangle. Oh, the America's ready for a civil war revolution. It's not going to happen. And if it does happen, it's fully controlled. Uh, any revolutionary anywhere in the world, give it up. It ain't going to happen. You might as well get off this planet and try it somewhere else. Because in order to pull it off, whether it's peaceful or violent, you're going to need resources. And all of the resources are being controlled from a central location on the entire planet. Right? 
Now, if the elite, let's say the people that own the world, a small handful say, well, let's just have some fun over here and let's just uh, make or let them have a revolution or civil war. Well, you will see if you study it, the people that pulled it off or started it were, su were supported by some pretty big power behind the scenes. So a genuine revolution, something like Napoleon tried to do, for example, is impossible on the planet right now. And I mean it, impossible. Uh, try this example. Uh, if you have a, one of those smart devices or a phone or whatever, just have it on and through your day, mention some key words. You know, like let's say, uh, you know, you want uh, cherry ice cream or you want to just keep saying whether you're by yourself or other people, just bring up the concept of ice cream several times. Bring up the concept of you need new tires several times or bring up the concept that you need a new couch. Just with the phone on or a, a smart TV or, or an iPad or something in the room. And I assure you, by the next day, you will have advertisements for all of those things you mentioned. Right? Yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, it's true. You can try it. Uh, I, did, I did one. I have a phone that's not activated uh, through the phone line, but it is activated through Wi-Fi. And I kept using the word Maserati. And after the third time, within a few hours, I got an ad for a Maserati. So... How are you going to have a revolution? You, it's impossible, right? There is, or civil war, or, or you know, change. Like you, you hear these, pro, this is, um, how, how do you uh, go to a planet, right? Another, another world, let's say, uh, objectively, study them and tell their inhabitants what's really going on. Okay, you, you can do that, right? You just met communication, right? That's what you're just going to communicate them objectively what you see happening on their planet because it's easier for you to do it because you don't have the biases by being raised there and, and being desynthesized to certain things. Okay, you can do that, but what are the chances of them heeding or comprehending what you're saying? Very slim to none. So, um, again, uh, one of the purposes perhaps is just to interject about Greek speak is uh, today we were talking about communication and again it's it's more than just that uh, but it's uh, can you be objective and when you're objective can you be efficient uh, again to raise the example if you look on the internet they they're saying oh america's ready for civil war do not pay that any mind whatsoever right there are people out there that believe that and are losing energy don't even lose one watt of energy uh, or one breath towards that direction, because it's not going to happen. And if something like that does happen, it's fully contrived, just like a movie set. And But imagine it's a snuff film movie set. If you see people dying, well, you're in a movie where people really do die, right? So uh, it, it's kind of like the, the interesting reality that I've witnessed this personally. I remember back in the late 60s, people coming over from Europe, Italy, Greece, what have you, mountain people. I mean, people that... There was one light bulb in the village of 500, and this is in the late 60s, right? And they sat down in front of a television on the East Coast, let's say New York area, in the late 60s, watching a cowboy and Indian TV show. And they're actually crying because the Indians were being shot on television, right? This is a, you know, some bonanza show where they actually thought people were dying. That's how they didn't understand the concept of this was thespian or these were actors and it was all props. Now, to go a little bit further, <clears throat> this is true. You could look this up. They had a, a show here. This is now. This is not the, the, the more primitive mountain people that I just mentioned from Italy and Greece. This is just your average American. <clears throat> in, in, from your average Americans, 
in the late 60s, there was a show called Gilligan's Island that was aired, and it was about some castaways on an island. And the actual Coast Guard of the United States had received thousands of calls from everyday citizens about going and rescuing those people that were watching on TV. Right. This is true. I'm not making this up, by the way. You could look this up. So whether my example here is whether you're coming from a primitive, let's say, mountain people that think cowboys and Indians are really dying on TV at 6 p.m. in black and white, or your people that were raised in the Western culture thinking that they're real castaways on the show they're watching, you see. So to both people, the mountain people and the people that were raised in civilization, they thought what they were watching was real. Now, let's fast forward to what people call the Internet. When you go on the Internet and you see whatever garbage they're putting up, because to me, the Internet is like um, garbage day. When uh, garbage day, meaning like if you live in a city or a, a semi-suburban neighborhood, you'll see this garbage day. And that's when the people roll their garbage cans or their bins out to the curb and the service comes and picks them up, you know, once a week or whatever. OK, that, that's when you put stuff on the Internet, that's like rolling the garbage to the curb for it to be picked up. That is essentially what it is, generally. Now, it doesn't mean you're not going to find anything good in there, right? Uh, so if you're into electronics and someone puts out an old uh, microwave in the garbage, well, that's garbage to them. But guess what? There's If you were to take that old microwave apart, there's a 1000 bucks worth of spare parts in there that you could use. So that's a different story there. But in essence, it's... Uh, garbage day. So when you look at the internet and you start seeing political, religious, scientific stuff um, that is not being put out for you, let's say, that is being put out for the masses that think that uh, cowboy and Indians are really being shot on television and crying about it or calling the Coast Guard because there's some castaways on Gilligan's Island. I see it the same way what's being put out um, uh, on the internet today. So hopefully with some Greek-speak people, we'll be able to act more efficiently. And, and again, since we brought up communication, just to interject, you could look at modern uh, culture, the different ages that you had. You had the Industrial Age. How did that serve you? Right. You had uh, the biggest problem when that was no longer uh, touted as being so wonderful was what? Uh, we had garbage dumps, chemical wastes, environmental damage, right? Obs planned obsolescence. Okay, then became the space age. Well, what did that give you? Some maybe some space junk, and the rest of it was just fake uh, stuff in a movie studio, right? And now you have um, the information age. What kind of rubbish trail is that going to leave? So just think about that. Well, I think it's timely that you mentioned the internet and technology. So let's conclude the stream by looking at the relationship between communication and technology. So what I've observed is that people don't really talk with or even to each other as much as past each other now. So they say something that often fails to resonate with the other person who meanwhile is just waiting for their turn to speak and there's little exchange of ideas or propositions. Um, I think that some of that has to do with the fact that people's communication abilities have diminished alongside the rising in consumer technology like TVs and computers. That stuff has shaped each new generation into redefining how to communicate because of how the products are designed. What has been your observation of how things like that, TV and computer-driven devices, have not only changed people's way of interacting, but possibly dumbed them down also? Let's shift around a little bit. Let's say we had a time machine and we brought an ancient 
uh, you know, you, let's I'll let you pick it from five hundred, a thousand, or two thousand years ago. Pick one. Two thousand. Okay, they would laugh at you. They, if you showed them a smartphone or a computer, they would just laugh their ass off for like two minutes. Say, what good does that do? At first, they'll say, well, we're, you know, they'll look in front of it, behind it, what's going on here, right? And after five minutes of explaining electricity and that, they'll just laugh at you. They, they'll say, well, what's going on? They'd point out the window or out the door and say, what's all this crap on the street here? And they're like, what are you talking about? It looks fine. All this asphalt, all this black stuff that we see bubbling out of the ground that we avoid and use for special purposes, you have spread it everywhere on the street. You have a cold box with food that I wouldn't even feed to cattle, to an animal, basically, you know, your refrigerator, right? I mean, they would look at you and just laugh at you, you know, even the most primitive one of them, because they would see how far away you are from what it means to be a living being. Right. And uh, how you're trying to stretch a feeble mind into something like a computer or a television and say, you are actually paying attention to this beautiful, you know, you call beautiful, big flat screen TV, HD or OLEP or whatever, watching a movie that is so stupid. Right. You're letting your cat, it's taking your mind. Right. Uh, give you another example. Uh, let's fast forward to the early 20th century. Uh, the Polaroid cameras uh, 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 took instant pictures of uh, explorers take going to uh, islands in the Pacific and other parts of the world of natives. And when the natives saw immediately uh, the photograph, they would tear it up and, and take the camera and break it because they thought it was capturing their spirit or their essence. If you could capture an image of me, then you might pull out a machine that might capture my body and shrink it down into a box, you see. Now, we might laugh at that, but they just saw it as an impulse, like, look what, look what how you're manipulating my perception, you see, and I find that offensive. Uh, I think I've mentioned on other streams in the past, the first thing an ancient would say is, why are you dumping this asphalt, this black stuff everywhere, meaning your roads, right? They would find that offensive. So they would look at a smart, going back to the technology, you know, staring at a screen kind of thing as being spiritually devoid, meaning mentally devoid. Now, fast forward to right now. Uh, how many times have you heard or seen people sitting next to each other and texting each other, right? You, this is a popular thing years ago that was shown at how stupid people are or whatever. You see? We'll come back to the communication, uh, the technology, but can you just develop the asphalt thing? So this is a, a dangerous thing because... Many aspects of it. Well, first of all, it the, the bubbled up out of the ground pretty much everywhere in the world, believe it or not. There's some of it bubbling up right now in places uh, in what's called Russia uh, and, the, and the, giving the people some excuse of what it is. But uh, it, it was used, it was very uh, toxic. It was known to be toxic because the gases that followed it were toxic. If you breathed it, you died or got sick. They were tasteless and odorless, like hydrogen sulfide will kill you. Um, and it was very sticky when it cooled, and it was uh, not friendly, not a friendly substance. And it came out of the earth, out of the dark. Um, and they viewed it as a specialty item. And it was to be respected in something that was uh, uh, lim for limited use only. Right? And that's very simple. Uh, now, if you fast forward to modern times, you, uh, I can prove to you um, the dangers of it that, that are not discussed by anyone, pretty much. I mean, it is known I have spoken to civil engineers, and they all acknowledge it, but they don't say anything. 
And that is, uh, how many times have you heard of uh, clean water acts uh, that they're all over, environmental protection acts all over the world, right? In other words, if you have a toxic substance in industry or even in someone's home, don't dump it on the ground or don't throw it down the sewer, right? Don't, you know, you'll get fined for that, right? You have a special waste disposal, you know, uh, every, pretty much anyone in the civilized world has heard of that. Well, if you're so civilized and so, let's say, whatever, you're, I'm going to sh- illustrate how hypocritical society is. The, this asphalt mixture, I don't know what uh, people know about asphaltic mi- mixtures. Uh, if you ever go to an asphalt plant, plant where they mix this black tar hot stuff with gravel to pave roads with, what's in that asphalt? Do you think it's environmentally friendly or it's loaded with dioxins and benzenes and carcinogens? Right. It would be the latter. And what do you think happens when rainfall occurs on these roads and the runoff from the rainfall uh, happens? Well, you know, you have tremendous amount of runoff. And if you ever look at it, 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 you ever noticed a newly paved asphaltic road? Well, how do you know it's newly paved? Well, it looks really black and sticky almost. You know, if you're walking around it in, you know, 25 or 30 degrees Celsius or 90 degree weather, you're, the, the soles of your feet actually stick to it. They have to pour sand over it sometimes. Well, how do you know when the the road is, is, is weathered? Well, you could actually see the gravel on the top. It actually, you don't see the smooth blackness. You see a... Uh, you see uh, the aggregate that's that makes up the asphalt. It's no longer black. It's like a light gray sometimes, right? Well, what happened to all that asphaltic material and what's in that asphaltic material? All of the solvents and uh, toxic uh, stuff. It's washed away. Where? Well, how? Well, I thought we're not allowed to uh, dump toxic substances into the environment. You see? Ah, yes. Understood. But there, you see, it's uh, you want uh, food. An ancient would laugh at you to see where people bought their food these days. You feeding this poisonous stuff to yourselves willingly? Here, here's the interesting part. If you were to do a cross section of society and uh, how it is, you'd, you'd find it's pretty. It's a horror uh, movie, really, and I say it's a movie because it's fake, uh, scripted. Um, but at the same, what makes it even worse than a horror movie? is that people are volunteering uh, into it and they're very accepting of it. Uh, where in a horror movie, when the, uh, the the star of the horror movie, which is usually the villain, uh, is chasing down, they have to chase down their victims, don't they? The victims rarely say, okay, you can hack me to pieces, right? Uh, they very rarely do that. What, what, what makes modern society worse than a horror movie is they actually... Uh, are being accommodated by it, and they're willingly accepting it. Well, yes, that was just a slight side tangent. But just to get back to the original question, I think it's safe to say that we've seen the rise of smart devices come to fill the role of not only medium, where people call or text with them, but also mediator between people. Like an iPhone is very deliberately designed to impose certain restrictions on how you can communicate with others, and it guides your thoughts along certain lines. What kind of effect do you think the designs of phones and tablets and laptops have had on people? Well, I'd say uh, it's an obsession. Uh, You can see, um, let's say, let's go to the, even the, I don't know about the Pashtuns in Afghanistan, but let's go uh, Western Asia, the, what they call the Middle East. 
uh, you ever see these things called worry beads? If you go to the cafes or on the street, you see usually the older people, they have a string of beads and they're flicking them or they have them in their pocket. It's like something to do, right? Cigarette smoking was very much like that. Uh, up until the 60s, if you watch uh, uh, any archived uh, television shows anywhere in the world up until the 1970s uh, and prior, uh, you, smoking publicly or on even television uh, was normal. It was almost uh, an accepted and if you, in fact, and if you didn't smoke, there was something wrong with you. Um, so it was just something to do. Let's say uh, uh, what gets the people into the smart devices is the tactile nature of it. Just like the the, the beads that uh, they they play in their with their hands uh, in their hands with all day in the Middle East, so not so much now because they have smart devices. So there's the tactile um, aspect of it because no matter how smart that as they say, you notice the people are never smart, just the devices are. No matter how uh, beneficial the technology was, if it didn't have a tactile feel that was pleasurable to the senses the people would not accept it. So it's, it's, it's the tactile aspect of it. They like the picture. They like the, the good sound. They like that they can, quote-unquote, communicate with it. It doesn't mean that the substance of the communication is worthwhile. It's just that they can do it. There's just something about it that they like. But there is an aspect of what we see with things like Siri and Alexa where there is no tactile aspect, but it's hugely popular that people just speak and the AI does something. Well, that's also, I believe, that to a certain level, when I first saw that, I said, oh, look, they're just mimicking a butler. Think about that for a minute. And if look up what the butler really is, you know, he's the manager of the house. The butler managed the gardener and the cleaning uh, crew and the wait staff and the cooking crew. The butler was the manager of the house for the master, you know, of the servants. So the Alexa and these talking devices that are not as directly tactile as an iPad or let's say a phone or, or, or pad uh, as known today, um, it's the manager, the managerial aspect. Because when you had a butler or a wait staff or a staff, uh, you call out, right? And if they didn't hear you had uh, bells that you would ring or uh, an intercom, literally it was like a, a speaker in the, in the wall, it was a tube. And you spoke to it, and you spoke and gave orders or commands, and uh, the servants um, beckoned to your call. That's all it is, if you look at it from that point of view. Right. To conclude the stream, in the interest of time, um, you've remarked in the past on how the designs of some of these devices impose an almost childlike mindset, particularly of a nine-year-old. Can you develop that a little bit? Well, the mindset behind it, you see, um, it's prejudicial. In other words, if you don't follow the mindset, it punishes you, right? You can see the mindset very simply every time you interact with a smart device, whether it's to go to a different function or, um, again, let's just keep it to going to a different function. It sort of queries you and uh, um, uh, gives, it serves you with a little uh, verbal notion or, you know, a, a text notion. Oh, would you like this? Or, you know, um, uh, this is just the language that's being used and how it's being directed to the mind would be the way to accommodate, let's say, a nine-year-old girl not a nine-year-old boy, and I'm using those terms literally because, you know, when you're young, you're a boy and a girl. So you can see that. It's quite obvious. And a very simple way to, to uh, look at that is look at um, the, the child culture. Uh, go study what has been 
uh, geared towards, let's say, between seven and 11-year-old girls in in media or entertainment, um, things that have been specifically designed for that age group of girls. And then go look at your smart device. The same vernacular, the same attitude. Yeah, I think that that will make for some interesting study for some people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, okay. I don't know if that was deliberate by design. It just happened to be that way, and I'm, act, I'm not. I'm not actually interested to see the uh, psychology behind it. I find the uh, smartphone repugnant. Yes, you're quite fortunate, Greek. Some people are not that. Uh, well, actually, if more people took my stance, they it would still be the the, the services would be accessible to them. But if more uh, more and more people took that stance then there would be fewer and fewer smartphones and then you would go back to not having remote access to the internet because that would right. be the only difference you know there were cell phones around but cell phones were more than popular uh, 20 years ago right so all right i think that does it for me i feel like we've tackled a range of things in this stream and some of it will undoubtedly resurface in future themes do you have any final points you want to touch on before we make haste out of here? The only final point is the beginning point, which is c discussing communication that is too wide. And just to leave uh, uh, maybe the final point, which might be the most salient point, is what, what people consider to be sacred in iconography and in uh, you know their objects, that is another form of communication. You could take, for example, any nation's flag is viewed as a sacred item and like you know raising it up and praising it is considered the norm and the good thing to do or trampling on it or burning on it or pooping on it is considered defilement right but if you're in the dark and you have you've just uh, uh washed something down and you need uh, a, a dry canvas to dry it off you can easily grab any nation's flag and do it in the dark without knowing that it's uh, a you know a flag signal printed on it so a flag and sacred devices iconography things like that uh, are another form of communication you've seen it in hollywood in movies where the vampire they show him a crucifix right and the vampire goes away you know that because it has some power in it so uh, th these things need to be considered and um, and studied for those that have the time and want to cool and possibly we'll since you brought it up, we might touch on that theme sometime in the future. Thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of the Greek Speak Podcast. We will endeavor to be back next week with another stream. And um, see you then.